we'll review a little bit. Uh, who knows, we might even make it through chapter 21 tonight. We might finish next week, who knows. Before we uh, pray and get into the lesson, <clears throat> I just listened to a, uh, an update, a, kind of a breaking news report um, from Israel, uh, from uh, Sarfati, and um, things over there obviously are heating up. Uh, this is something that is really, really huge. Uh, it's probably bigger than most of us realize. Uh, as he was speaking, uh, the F-16s were taking off behind him. He said he was standing near a, a bomb shelter so that if the uh, sirens went off, he and his family would be able to go. I assume his family, he didn't mention them, uh, into the bomb shelter. Uh, you did have some information that I had not heard. Um, I think you know that they've been pretty heavily bombing Gaza. Uh, there are entire areas of the uh, city that just are non-existent anymore. And of course, they're being very careful because there are at least 160 hostages, and I think quite a number of them are American. Uh, our illustrious administration is making any American trapped in Israel, if they want to come home, they have to sign an agreement that they will pay their own way. Um, That's our guy. So much different than, than what it was uh, in other times, uh, but I won't go into that. Uh, Israeli special forces have gone into Gaza. Uh, they're looking for evidence or um, any uh, telltale hints of where the uh, people that have been abducted, hostages, might be those that are alive, which probably very few of them. He, he even acknowledged most of these people are probably dead. Um, I think that at least 17, if not more, Americans have been killed in this attack. Uh, he also indicated, and this doesn't surprise me, although I have mixed feelings about it, we already have American Special Forces and Delta Force in Israel. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I feel good about that in one way, in that I think we should support them in every way that we can. I'm reluctant in another way because this thing could very easily explode into something really, really huge. Uh, Russia has already given a warning that Israel is not to strike Iran. Of course, Iran is the one that's striking them through Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, Israel has given Hezbollah a warning that if they step up their attacks, which they've already attacked, they are going to level Damascus, which is quite interesting since the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 17 in the first three verses tells us that the day is coming that Damascus will be leveled and will never be a city again. So I think we're living in prophetic times. It's very possible because of the links between Iran, Russia, uh, Syria, uh, and uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, that we could be actually seeing the beginning stages of the Ezekiel 38 war. Uh, if that's the case, then we better batten down the hatches because 
this is going to be huge, uh, but it will be exciting in one sense. You know, scholars and uh, Bible students, and we use the word scholars so loosely, really. I think it's too often applied to people that it shouldn't apply to, but Bible scholars, Bible commentators, Bible interpreters uh, debate <clears throat> at what point the Ezekiel 38, 38 and 39 war will take place. Will it take place before the rapture? Will it take place during the rapture? Or will it take place after the rapture? But I think one thing that most of them are in agreement about is that it's in close proximity before, during, or after the rapture of the church. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the fact that tomorrow about 10.30 we're going to have a total eclipse of the sun. Uh, this eclipse, interestingly, cuts completely across the United States from northwest down into Texas and then into the Gulf. And it's an unusual uh, eclipse that they refer to as a ring of fire. Um, the ancients, and I tend to uh, follow their thinking, uh, believe because the scripture tells us that God uh, orders events like this in the heavens as signs. Uh, this is probably not a good sign for the United States. A number of military people have told us, look very closely at what's happening in uh, the uh, attacks by Hamas because we have about 30 brigades of Hamas in the United States. So uh, we have very, very foolishly, you know, Rome fell not because they were attacked. Rome fell because they let their enemies keep coming in and keep coming in and keep coming in. And of course, the superstructure uh, of the nation was so corrupt and so degenerate uh, that it came to a point where with barely, barely uh, any uprising at all, uh, the uh, barbarians took over Rome. So we find ourselves in a, a very similar situation. But I never like to give bad news without giving good news, and that is always remember that we uh, rest in the protection of God, that nothing can touch us apart from His permission. Uh, Jude warns us, we just came back from Pennsylvania, had a marvelous conference on the book of Jude. And one of the seven things Jude tells us that we have to do in order to contend for the faith is keep yourselves in the love of God. It makes all the difference in the world in the days ahead what can and cannot happen to you if you keep yourself in the will of God. Question comes up, how can we do that? It's answered very simply, simply by Jesus in John 15 and verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And essentially what it's talking to is living a life of fellowship and obedience to God so that we're under his watch care, provision, and protection. So I would encourage each and every one of us to pray for Israel. Uh, I not only pray for Israel, I pray for the poor people on the other side. Uh, I don't... Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, have any uh, compassion on those who perpetrated these horrible acts. Uh, but there are women and little children that are in those areas that are going to come under fire. And uh, we need to always be reminded that Christ died for them as well. So pray for them 
and uh, pray that God, you know, he, he watches over and he sorts through and uh, the little children that have been slaughtered, uh, those children are resting in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can always rejoice in the knowledge that they are safe. So without any further ado, let's get back to the book of Revelation. We're studying Revelation. We're living in Revelation times. And let's see if we can finish chapter 21. By the way, it's interesting. These notes were actually done in 1984. And believe it or not, uh, as I study, I find them more relevant today than they were then. Uh, But I also find that the more I study, the more I keep adding to them. And I have written in things all over these notes so the longer you study a book the more things you come up with and sometimes it's hard to complete what we want to complete in our study so join me at the throne of grace and uh, very quickly we will get into the book father we are thankful for your grace we do pray for the peace of jerusalem we pray for the israeli (coughs) the israeli people father we uh, pray also for all of the people in gaza We know that Christ died for every member of the human race. And while there are those who have blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts to a point of total dedication to evil, we know, Father, that there are still innocents caught in the conflict. And we just pray that your mercy uh, will be displayed to uh, all those who are receptive to your word and your truth and will humble themselves under your mighty hand. Guide us now as we open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, as we study end-time events, we find ourselves living in those events. So bless our study, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to take a quick sip of energy. I want to just go back and notice that the key to chapters 21 and 22 is 21.5. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And everything that we're studying in chapter 21 and 22 are new things. So we're now looking into eternity future. Uh, If I can just do a quick timeline. And by the way, I don't know how anyone can make any sense out of the Bible if they don't believe in a dispensational approach. The dispensational approach to Scripture is uh, under heavy fire now. There are people that say that we can't tell where we are. We don't know where we are. We're just somewhere along this moving line of history, which to me seems really ridiculous. Eternity past is here. Eternity future is here. It's all the same to God. By the way, He is here and here and all through here at the same time. Try to figure that out. I can't. The minute you put the cross in the middle of human history, you have just acknowledged dispensational truth. That's why we call everything recorded here Old Testament. And we call everything here New Testament. Really what we're talking about is Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his disciples in the upper room. After the resurrection of Christ, we have the descent of the Holy Spirit. And with the descent of the Holy Spirit, a new age begins. 
called the church age. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 calls it the mystery dispensation or as Paul says the dispensation. He uses the word. Uh, the word dispensation from the Greek means the rule of the household. Uh, so there's a different rule for this household than there is for this household. If you read Hebrews chapter 3 in the first six verses, the author of Hebrews, who I believe to be the Apostle Paul, talks about two different households. Moses was a servant in his household. Jesus is the Lord over his household. Therefore, he is much greater than Moses. So we're talking about two different households. And the reason that the church is called a mystery is because it was never revealed in the Old Testament. The very first mention of the church was when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that was the first mention. So the church age has a whole lot of unique things that never happened back here. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit by which we're placed into eternal union with Jesus Christ. We have the work of regeneration, which gives us the life of Christ. When we talk about eternal life, we're actually talking about the life of Jesus Christ. We have the permanent indwelling of every believer. Never happened in the Old Testament. Every believer in Jesus Christ is permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the gifting of every believer, which is the divine enablement for each of us to accomplish whatever plan God has for our life. And then we have the work of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our eternal security. Those are only five of the at least 40 things mentioned in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Remember how Paul begins Ephesians by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, he goes through in the first three chapters and just keeps adding new things, new things, new things, new things, all of those riches that we have. The church age is going to end with the rapture of the church. We've studied that several times. Christ descends from heaven. The church ascends to meet him, after which the terrible time of tribulation. This is Revelation chapters 6 through 19. The church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. It's never mentioned in the section dealing with the tribulation. Those who tell you that we need to prepare to go through the tribulation or those who tell you that we're already in the, the tribulation simply are incapable of seeing the obvious in the book of Revelation. We are nowhere to be found in the tribulation period. Doesn't mean it can't get bad in our time. I often refer to what I call the pre-tribulation tribulation, and I think we're in that right now. After the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, establishes his kingdom that he promised to Israel. It lasts, we're told, three times a thousand years. At the end of it, we have the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of all unbelievers. Unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire, and we enter into eternity future. Eternity future is Revelation 21 and 22. We are now in eternity future. 
So behold, I make all things new. If you have the notes, you'll notice on page 76, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and there's a new Jerusalem. <clears throat> I think we talked about all of this uh, last time. A couple of notes that you might want to just jot down with the new Jerusalem. I'm not going to take time to look at these. Psalm 48 talks about it. Um, Isaiah 59, verses 11 through 15. Isaiah 60, verses 10 through 12. And Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 talk about the new Jerusalem. From the language that we have concerning the new Jerusalem here, uh, it really looks to me as if Jerusalem, remember it's a cube. It looks to me as if, and there's no sun, and you'll remember that the walls of the city are transparent. They're, they're gold that is so pure that it's transparent so that the light of the presence of the Lord shines out. It appears to me that in the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem actually orbits the earth. It becomes the light of the earth. Remember that it says the nations will walk in the light of it. So that's my idea, that's my opinion uh, to the best that I can see. Um, so we've got three new things, we've got three perfect things. In verse 3 we have perfect fellowship, in verse 4 we have perfect happiness, and in verse 5 we have a perpetual newness. Uh, I don't think I brought this out last time, but when he says, I make all things new, the present tense indicates an ongoing action. I keep on making all things new. In other words, it's not going to be everything's new and that's it. It's going to be everything is new and continues to be new. You know, we sometimes get bored with life because every day seems like it's the same old thing. Not going to be that way in heaven. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, you remember Paul talks about the fact that in all of the ages to come, he will continue to show the greatness of his grace to us in Christ Jesus. And I think every day is going to be a new and an amazing day. People say, well, there won't be days there because we're in eternity, but we've already seen that there are going to be months and if there are months, there have to be weeks. And if there are weeks, there have to be days. And so I look at it as time without end. Time that will go on forever and ever. So let's just uh, pick up in... Uh, well, let me just ask, are there any questions in verse 1 to 8 before we move on? If there's anything that I haven't done a halfway decent job of explaining, I'd be happy to go back and try to explain it. Okay, no questions. Let's start in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, these are very powerful angels, by the way. Remember that all angels are not the same. There are different ranks and there are different kinds of angels. Uh, we talk about cherubim and seraphim. We don't know how many other kinds there may be. These are 
the cherubim seem to be the highest and the mightiest. We, we see pictures of a cherub and we see a cute little fat baby with little angel wings on. Uh, the cherubim, the I am ending is simply the Hebrew plural. So the cherub or the cherubs uh, that are pictured for us in the Bible are the mightiest, uh, the most awesome, the most fearful. Stop and think of the fact that when they appear to people, and John is going to fall into this, they appear in the form of a man. But there's something about that appearance that is so terrifying that sometimes people drop at their feet as if they're dead. And that's after they've shielded and covered the magnificence of their glory. So they are mighty, mighty angels. And then we have the seraphim, and the seraphim are the ones that are constantly singing, holy, holy, holy. They may be the angelic choir, um, but we don't know how many other kinds and ranks there are. But these angels that had the seven bowls are mighty, powerful angels. He came to me and said, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. It's very interesting that the bride and the wife, remember that we're still in the betrothal stage of our marriage union with Christ. And uh, when in ancient times, when a young man and a young woman became engaged, or as they said, betrothed, uh, she was considered his wife, even though they were not completely married yet. From the moment that that commitment was made, she was called the wife. So I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Verse 10, he carried me in the spirit to a great and high mountain. When have we seen great and high mountains before? Remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus tempted, or when Jesus was tempted by the devil, he took him up into a great and a high mountain. And this figure is used several times in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's really a metaphor, but it's an illustration that pictures a mountain so high that you can kind of see the whole world. So John is carried away to a great and a high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. If you remember in Galatians chapter 4, toward the end of the chapter, Paul makes a point that the Jerusalem that now exists is representative of Hagar and the law. They are enslaved by the law. Our mother is not the Jerusalem that now exists, but the Jerusalem that is above. The Jerusalem that is above is our mother, and therefore we are free. Well, he's talking about this heavenly residence that belongs to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he sees the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. I would love to describe that to you, but I don't believe human words are capable. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the, the brilliance and the luminescence of His presence. God is light, and that light is brilliant. Having the glory of God, and her light was like a most precious stone. And then he goes through a listing of the stone. <laughs> and remember that the stones uh, are used in the Old Testament, and you've Got the uh, notes here. Uh, see if I can just find them. I'm terrible at following my notes when I teach because they just get me lost. 
uh, the stones that were used for the breastplate of the high priest. It's in here somewhere. So it says, her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. She had great and high wall, a great and high wall with 12 gates, 12 gates into the city and 12 angels at the gates, guardians of the gates, if you will, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. I find this very interesting. So the city is the bride of the lamb, but the city has the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Three gates on the east, verse 13, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So what we have here is a gathering together, as I see it, of the family of God, those who have trusted in Him and believed in Him from the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, represented by the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. It's also interesting that the Apostle Paul tells us that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So we have a bringing together of the family from Old and New Testament. Verse 15, he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city. If you want to go back, I would encourage you to go back to Ezekiel chapter 40 and read from Ezekiel chapter 40. I think it runs all the way through 46 or 48. He goes into great detail about doing exactly what's being spoken of here. He is given a reed like a rod, and he is told to measure the city. And he measures the city in great detail. It's very easy to get lost in it. John doesn't go into that detail here. He tells us, verse 16, the city is laid out as a square. It's actually not a square, it's a cube. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So there we have the cube. How long are 12,000 furlongs? 1,500 miles. So the city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high. Can you even comprehend how much space that is in the city? I mean, if that city had floors, let's just imagine that there are floors in this 1,500 miles and every floor is a mile above the other. You could actually have a complete environment within 1,500 miles square with sky and clouds and everything above you, and then you go to the next floor, and you've got another and the next floor. I kind of like to think, and this is just me dreaming, that God has a place in that city where uh, each of us at the time, you know, if you wanted to go back to the Renaissance time, there's a Renaissance floor. Uh, if you wanted, like me, to go back to the early American West in the days of the mountain man, they got a mountain man floor. I realize it's childish, but I'm just telling you how childish sometimes I can think. I do know this. Whatever is there, it'll be better than what we can imagine. It'll be much better than what we can imagine. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, that is, an angel. 
Uh, it's very interesting here that we have the 12,000 with the 144, by the way, in your notes in the middle of page 78. I need to make a correction. When it talks about the city's dimensions, the cubits used for the wall, in your notes it says 144,000. It's 144. Just wipe out those last three zeros. 144 cubits are the wall, but it does make me wonder <clears throat> if there is some link because if you go back to Revelation chapter 7, you'll notice two numbers, 12,000 and 144,000. Maybe there's some link there uh, that we have not seen. I'll leave that to you to possibly explore. We are reminded in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 8, and I would encourage you to write in above that 1 Kings 6.20. 1 Kings 6.20. Both of these passages remind us that the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. The height, the width, the length was exactly the same. In the ancient world, the cube was a symbol of perfection. It was a symbol of perfection. Remember that the brazen altar and the breastplate were also in the symbol of a cube. Very interesting. You have references there in Exodus 27.1, Exodus 28.16, Exodus 32, and 1 Kings 6.20. You can go back and check those out. He then begins to tell us about the construction. Verse 18, the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, uh, I, I doubt that any of you have ever seen gold like this, like clear glass. Pure gold, but like clear glass. Once again, if the Lord is in the center of that city and if He is the light of the city, where's that light going to go? It's going to be diffused out of the city. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first, a foundation of jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. And this is, of course, where we get into the uh, various... Uh, Stones that were in the breastplate of the high priest. And by the way, notice those stones. If you go back to, uh, and you may want to jot these down in your notes, Exodus 28, 17 to 20 gives us the stones in the breastplate of the high priest. Now, how interesting is this? The stones in the New Jerusalem are the same as the stones on the breastplate of the high priest and... They're the same stones that were Lucifer's covering before he fell. Exodus, or Ezekiel 28, verse 13. I have a hunch that those stones hold a message that we probably are not yet aware of. Somehow they reveal the essence of God, the character of God, the glory of God in a way that we probably do not understand at this point. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Anybody in here like pearls? I know one person that likes pearls, and that's Nan. Did you know that in the ancient world, the pearl was valued above all other stones? 
We've looked at all of these stones, and they're all amazing, and we've looked at gold and silver. The pearl was valued above all of it. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew 13, Jesus, I keep wanting to lean back against that, Jesus tells us a story, a parable about a man who walked through a field. And he walked through a field and his toe hit something and he found a treasure buried in the field. So he went and sold everything he had so that he could buy that treasure. And then in the next verse is Ezekiel 13, verse, I think, 45, 46. A pearl buyer finds a pearl of great price. It's so valuable, he goes and sells his whole pearl collection so could he, have, he can have that one pearl of great price. And we generally tend to interpret this as the value of entering into his kingdom. When we find the gospel, when we find the truth of how we can enter eternal life, we have found the hidden treasure, or we have found the, great, the pearl of great price. <clears throat> I've come in later years to look at those stories a little bit differently. I believe Jesus is the man in the story. And I believe that the treasure that he found in this world and the pearl that he found of great price was you and I. I believe that shows the value that we have in his sight. So that if you were the only one that would ever trust Christ as your savior, he would have still gone to the cross. He sold all that he had. Remember what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, though he eternally existed in the form of God, that's what the Greek says. It usually doesn't come through in English translations. He eternally existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to cling to. In other words, he laid it aside. He made himself of no reputation. He was found in the form of a man and being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself even more, even to death, even the death of the cross. He gave up everything he had for what? That pearl. And if you're here tonight and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a part of that pearl that he considered worthwhile to sell all that he had. So we have pearls at the gates. This is where we get the term pearly gates. You know, there's a joke that's told about Australians because, as most of you know, Australia was a prison colony. Uh, Australia started out with the dregs of England. And people were shipped to Australia uh, as a prison colony, and they went there and they were basically slave labor. Uh, after a period of time, they were able to work that off and, and become free, and so there you have the population of Australia. But the story is of two of these Aussie guys, and they go up to the pearly gates. And they get there, and St. Peter meets them, and St. Peter says, well, I don't know if you guys are on the list. And he says, I'm going to have to go and check with the head office. So they're standing there, and St. Peter goes, and he goes into the throne room of God, and he opens the book, and he looks, and sure enough, there are their names. But it takes him quite a while to do this, and so after he gets everything in order, he goes back, and the two Aussies are gone. And so were the pearly gates. <laughs> <laughs> Pablo and Pedro. Pablo and Pedro. There you go. All right. 
a pearl for each gate. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass, once again. But there are several things that are not in the city. And it's very interesting, the things that will not be there. I saw no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb or its temple. It's very interesting that Paul tells us because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit that we are the temple of God. Do you not know? He says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, I believe, 13 and, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 6, 19. He refers to us as the temple of God. So there's no temple. Not only that, the city had no need of the sun or the moon. No sun or moon to shine in it. Why? For the glory of God illuminated it. And the Lamb is its light. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Verse 24, the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. So here's another interesting thought. In eternity future, you know, what we call heaven, that, that idea that people have that I got as a kid that we go up there and sit on a cloud and play a harp. No, it's a kingdom. The closest portrayal that I have ever seen of it is Lord of the Rings. When you get to the end of the Lord of the Rings and you have the king and his bride uh, being joined in marriage and there's a great kingdom and there's great celebration and all of that just portrays in my mind, what we're talking about. So the nations of those who are saved, the nations that are going to be on this new earth, shall walk in its light. Again, I, I picture that as the new Jerusalem circling the earth. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. There's going to be worship. Uh, there's going to be work to be done. Um, you know, we can only try to imagine with our uh, feeble imagination what all will be involved. But the nations will come. You, you can picture here's the city and here comes this uh, tremendous procession from a nation of all of the leading officials of that nation bringing their honor and bringing their praise and bringing their glory into that marvelous city. Verse 25, the gates will not be shut at all by day because there will be no night. There's no night there. And uh, no night, no sun, no temple. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. <clears throat> the most important question that can be asked is, is your name there? Is your name written in the book? Yes. You know, the minute that a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, their name is written in the book of records of the members of the family of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ. That name can never be erased. That name is there for eternity. And those... <coughs> excuse me, who do not have their name in the book, <clears throat> they will not enter the city. And of course, the reason, uh, as we've already seen earlier in chapter 20, is because they're going to be in the lake of fire. 
All right, before we move along, we have a little bit of time left. We might just bite off a portion of chapter 22, but before we do, any question over what we've gone over? I think most of this is fairly self-explanatory. <clears throat> and of course, as I said, we can let our imagination play and run wild. Um, but it says what it says, and it means what it says. We can nail down at least that these conditions are going to prevail in eternity. Question? Kind of a question. So yes, this sir. is future eternity. So is this new Jerusalem going to be a merger with heaven today? I'm not sure I understand what you're asking. So, so heaven exists today. Sorry? Heaven comes down in Jerusalem. Yeah, heaven will be coming down in the form. So let's look at it this way, if we can. We know that the Bible talks about three heavens. Did you know there's three heavens? We say I'm in seventh heaven. Paul said there's only three. Second Corinthians 12, he went to the third heaven. Well, that's because the first heaven is the place where the birds fly. Right? The second heaven is the place of the moon and the sun and stars. third heaven is the throne room of God. So in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, I was taken up to the third heaven, he's talking about the throne room of God. So now if we have, and we know that sin has polluted even the precincts of heaven, how do we know that? Job chapter 1, chapter 2, the sons of God came before the Lord and Satan came among them. So there was a period of time after his revolt and after his fall that he still had access into the presence of God. So there's defilement there. All of this is going to be cleansed. So there's going to be new heavens, plural, and a new earth. I believe that it's the same earth and the same heavens. I think they're just renewed. They're cleansed. Re restructured, uh, whatever you want to call it, cleansed. So now, this place, my pen keeps running out on me, try red, this place, New Jerusalem, Paul said it was already there when he was writing, Galatians chapter 4, the Jerusalem that is above, that's our mother. If you remember when Moses was given the instructions about how to build the tabernacle, what was he told? To build it just like what he saw in heaven. See that you build it according to the copy that was shown you in the heavens. This is already there. So when we talk about the throne room of God, we're talking about a throne in a city that is filled with mighty and varied angelic beings. This is going to come down in the vicinity of the earth. Again, 
I have a hard time picturing a city 1,500 mile cube sitting on the earth, but it could become the sun of the new earth. We, we have no need of the sun because the light of the city, the nations are going to walk in its light. That's just the way I picture it. So essentially what we're talking about is heaven is going to come to earth. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, it, it, it does. Yeah, because I'm thinking, because this sounds heavenly, and I'm thinking, well, what about the heaven that's now? Yeah. Well, the thing that I love about it is that, and, and we'll get more into this in, in chapter 22, what's heaven going to be like? Just, just try to pause for a moment and think, what is heaven going to be like? In all of the pictures and portrayals that we have, it's going to be a whole lot like the best of what's here. Take away all sin, take away all disease, multiply the beauty. I don't know if you love places like Colorado or Wyoming. I love big mountains. I love mountain scenery. And you look at it and you go, and especially if there's a fantastic sunset. Uh, I once, when I was in Alaska in 1969, saw the sunset and the sunrise at the same moment. Can you imagine? So we were out working, cutting trails for the guy that I was working with, and the sun in Alaska goes like this. So it comes up over here and it circles around and it goes down here. Well, there was this big mountain that we were cutting toward because that's where all the sheep hang out, hung out. We're cutting trails toward this and we're working and the sun's going down and it went down behind this mountain and the, the glow over here was all sunset. So you saw all the sunset glow and then before that sunset glow had faded, the light started streaming up and morning was breaking on the other side of the mountain. It's the most amazing thing I think I've ever seen. So you look and you see something like that and you go, how magnificent and glorious. Mm -hmm. Well, that probably looks like a dirty alley compared to what heaven's going to be like. Mm -hmm. we, because we just can't comprehend. It's hard for us to imagine how much damage sin has done to creation. Mm -hmm. How much of the glory, how much of the beauty of the original creation has been diminished because of the curse of sin. Well, we see it through earthly eyes and not spiritual eyes. So that makes it well, we'll be seeing it through physical eyes because we'll be in resurrection bodies. Yeah. And I find that... is decaying. Huh? Even the sun itself is currently decaying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the sun's burning out, and that's why they're worried that it, we're going to get hit by a solar flare that's going to knock everything out. Yeah, and, and the Old Testament, and I forget the exact reference. I wish I had a sharper mind, but uh, the passage that says that the creation itself will grow old as a garment. And like a garment, you will fold it up and put it away. So basically, that's going to be the renovation of the heavens and the earth. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Heaven on earth. That's probably the best way it can be said. Well, let's just read the first five verses and we might not get 
our time's just about gone. Now we're zeroing in on the throne of God. So Revelation 22.1, And he showed me a pure river of the water of life. What did Jesus say? What, what did Isaiah say way back in Isaiah? What is Isaiah 55.1? Oh, everyone that thirsts, let him come to the waters. He that has no money, let him come and let him drink. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the street was the tree of life. That tree that was cut off when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden is going to be growing in this new city. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river is the tree of life. So I assume that the street is divided, the river runs through the middle, and the street is lined with the tree of life. Notice that the tree of life bears 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit when? Every month. Aren't we in eternity now? Why would we still have months? People say there's not going to be any time in eternity. Well, this is telling me that we're going to have 12 months. I assume if we have months, we're also going to have weeks and days. So instead of the idea of no time, it's time without end. Yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? I have to tell you, I can only surmise. I can't really imagine. We're already dealing with redeemed people. They're already in glorified bodies. We already have a perfect environment. Why would the nations need healing? Well, it could actually describe a condition where imagine that you go to a doctor or you go to a naturopath or whatever and imagine that you could go tomorrow and be put in perfect health perfect health no no need for glasses no hearing problems no aches and pains uh, perfect weight no need to lose weight what a wonderful world that would be and everything is perfect. And you think this is as good as it gets. But then he says, now every day I want you to take this pill and a glass of water. So the next day, you take the pill with a glass of water, and all of a sudden, everything that you thought was perfect, now it's better. You go, wow, this is pretty cool. I thought it was as good as it could get. The next day you take it, and guess what? Everything's even better. How much more perfect can you get than perfect? Well, what if there was no limit to the ongoing perfection that you and I would experience? And again, I come back to Ephesians 2, 7. In all the ages to come, he is going to show the exceeding greatness of his glory to us who are in Christ. And I think something like this is being indicated in this passage. The healing of the nations. 
Verse 3, there should be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. You ready for this one? And they shall see his face. I take this not just to be the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the face of God the Father. What's God look like? Remember in the Old Testament when Moses said, show me your glory, and what did God say to him there in Exodus, I believe, 32? No man can see my face and live. Mm -hmm. So he gets to see his hindquarters. Yeah. He can see his hindquarters. He see after he passed by, mm -hmm. right? Which is kind of, you can see my fading glory, but you can't see it full on. They shall see his face and his name will be on their forehead. You know, we live in an age where everybody wants to be tattooed, this and that and everything else. And some people just look like they came from another planet. This is one mark we're all going to be thankful to have. His name on your forehead, in my mind, it signifies not just a visible thing on your forehead. It signifies, you know, the forehead represents the mind. And there's going to be a complete and total surrender of the mind and a total occupation with the glory of God and with his purpose for us because I hope you all realize we're going to have jobs to do. We're going to be working. There's going to be things to accomplish. And I'll even throw out this idea, who knows what he may yet create? Say, well, he's not going to create anything else. Why would he not? He's a creator, and creators have to create. And whatever he may create, yet future, you and I are going to be playing a part of, whatever that may be. Verse 5, there should be no night there. They will need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light. Get this, they shall reign forever and ever. Are you ready to take up the crown? Are you ready to handle the scepter? Now, I believe we're going to reign in different degrees because I think the level of our reigning, as Jesus illustrates in the story of the servants that were given, the mites or the talents is going to be based on what we do with what we have now. Be thou over ten cities. Well, there's a guy that multiplied his ten talents. Be thou over five cities. Maybe someone will be over one. Who knows? I may be over a crossroads in Arizona. Who knows? But there are going to be things to do. And I'll even throw out this suggestion. I don't think we're going to be static. In other words, I think we're going to have the opportunity to advance, to continue to grow, to learn, to develop, to me, I can't imagine heaven without that. A static state uh, would seem very boring to me. In verse 6, he says, These words are faithful and true, and faithful and true begins the book and ends the book. And as a matter of fact, we're coming to Alpha and Omega. And he began the book with Alpha and Omega, and he's going to end it. And we're going to have to hold off for that until next week. All right. Let's pray. and. If you have any questions afterwards, we'll see if we can answer them. Father, we are thankful for your grace. As we read these passages, it's pretty easy for me at least to understand why you don't tell us more. 
And that's because our minds can't even really encapsulate and, and wrap themselves around this information that we have to just try to picture, to imagine, uh, to, to stretch our minds as much as we can, uh, we still can't really grasp the beauty, the glory, the wonder, the majesty of all that is going to be and why you in all your glory would have a desire to share that glory uh, with those who are so small and so insignificant and so frail as we are. Yet, Father, only your love can explain your desire to come down to us in the person of Christ so that you could lift us up to you in eternity future. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that we've seen tonight. Help us live the week ahead in light of them. Uh, help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to display the love of Christ. Help us to have a desire to reach friends, family, and neighbors because we know in light of current events, our time here may be very short. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.